Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning. All right. First thing, I want to say thank you to everyone for your outpouring of messages and support about uh, Anthony Bourdain. Everyone is just devastated. Uh, I am devastated. I am Doing this show, it feels like I've got a a horse sitting on my chest. I've just got this heavy, heavy feeling of grief, and I know a lot of you do too. It's uh, one of the things I've read in the last few days that's kind of helped is that uh, grief is like your brain's kind of reaction to an injury, and and we have all suffered an injury, and this is tough. Um, It's just going to stay tough until I guess enough time passes or we make time for it. But I thank you for, uh, I thank you for everything you've said. Uh, we're going to get through this together. I think, I don't know how else we'll do it, but we're, we're gonna, we're gonna dig deep and we're gonna, we're gonna get through it and it's rough and you can always, uh, reach out to me. You can find me on Facebook at Dara.Grumdahl. You can find me on Twitter at Dear Dara. Well, uh, we're going to get through this. We ha- still have a, a good show today, and uh, here's who we're going to talk to. We're going to talk to Deirdre Marie Capone. She wrote a memoir about life after you know having an uncle that was Al Capone, the famous Al Capone, a public enemy number one, Chicago's biggest crime boss of the 1920s. Most people know him today from, I think, the movies, Scarface, The Untouchables, a lot of those. And so, you know, kind of putting it in context this week, I had this show booked a while ago to talk to Deirdre about her her life in Minnesota, of all places, and how, um, you know, her, her the other part of the Capone family, the coming out of Italy, making meatballs, you know, the the, the food there's a lot of good recipes in the book, uh, uh, great memories about making dandelion soup. So I wanted to talk to her about that. But I think that, you know, with the sadness that's all around in the food world this week, we could also talk about how, you know, shame and feeling outcast can be huge, huge stressors. And, and they were that for Deirdre, who felt like she needed to leave Chicago uh, to rebuild her life in Minnesota. And so I... Uh, I'm really glad that Deirdre's here to talk about everything that, that she did in her life. Uh, her book, again, is called Uncle Al Capone, and I believe Deirdre's joining us from Naples, Florida. Deirdre, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Deirdre. And uh, you're right about the feeling of of grief um, and what, you know, people, what they think of you can do to you, and that's exactly what I went through. You know, there was a time in my life that I contemplated suicide because really? it was just overwhelming for me. It was a an unbelievable dichotomy that I lived in. Um, once my dad was found dead, my, you know, my mom, 
if you can just imagine the kind of a person that would choose to marry into the mob, um, that was my mother. My mother um, did not want to be a mother. She wanted to party. And she was very beautiful. The picture is very beautiful lady, um, you know, very spoiled because she was raised as a debutante. um, And then her father lost all of his money in the stock market crash. Um, So, you know, it was, it it was difficult to grow up. Um, I had a lot of horrific experiences, um, life-changing experiences in my life. And so because of that, I never told our children, our four children, they were all born in Chicago, I never told them their heritage. And so when my husband had an opportunity to move the family up to Minnesota, my my life literally started uh, for the first time. That's an you know? that's a it's incredible. So you you know we can talk about this all day, but it's so it's, you know when people see you with their preconceptions and not as you are, you had you had so much of that. You were ostracized by in second grade. Absolutely. Um, my my uncle died. Um, Al Capone died on January twenty fifth, nineteen forty seven which happened to be my seventh birthday. I am a Catholic, and Catholics, when they're in second grade, make their first communion. And back in those, the, the older, olden days, as I call them, the olden days, um, they always made their first communion on Mother's Day. And so that Mother's Day in May was the first Mother's Day that Al Capone's mother did not have with her beloved son, so the family decided to do something joyous. And so they outfitted me, and the entire Capone family came to the church to watch me make my first communion. And then we all went back to Grandma's house for a big picnic and a celebration. Back in the olden days in Chicago, there was always neighborhood editions of the two Chicago papers that would come out on Monday. So the Monday edition of the Chicago Tribune and the Herald American came out with a story. The children at St. Philip near I made their first communion, and Deirdre Capone with the entire Capone family made hers. Well, the children there didn't know me as Deirdre Capone. When my father entered me in school, he was trying to protect me. So he entered me in school using his middle name, which was Gabriel. He was Ralph Gabriel Capone. So he used his middle name as though it were my last name. So everybody in school knew me as Deirdre Gabriel. But how many Deirdres do you think were in this little second grade class at St. Philip near High School? So, you know, when my uncle died on my seventh birthday, all the newspapers all over the world, and especially in Chicago, ran all the alleged things that the Capone family did. And my dad's name was in there. My grandfather's name was in there. And of course, my uncle's name was all over the place. So my classmates' parents were being educated as to the goings-on in the 20s, wrongfully so. Right. So there's a, you, have, you make a persuasive case in your, in your book that there's just, you know, everything in the kitchen sink was pinned onto Al Capone as sort of a... Uh, when it, a lot of it is kind of look at it historically improbable that all those things happen, but a, a, a Superman makes a better story than a man. Well, and that's true. Um, 
See, there was a group of businessmen in Chicago, and you can look them up. It, they called themselves the Secret Six, and they were industrialists. You know, their parents came over on the Mayflower, and they took great exception to Italian immigrant sons rising to that point of power, and they just did anything they could. There was going to be a World's Fair in 1933 held in Chicago, and dignitaries from all over the globe were calling the Chicago you know, Department of Commerce, asking they wanted to come to the fair, but they wanted to make sure the Capone boys were there so they could meet them. Oh. And so these, these industrialists took great exception to that. So Why they did they want to meet the Capone boys? What were they because doing? They were, I mean, they were kind of like Robin Hood characters. You know, my 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 uncle opened the first kitchen the world had ever seen after the stock market crash. Oh, what do you mean the first kitchen the world had ever seen? Soup kitchen. Oh, soup kitchen. He they fed people who lost all their money in the stock market crash for over a year. Oh, I see. So in Chicago. It was they in were, Chicago, yes. They were doing yep. this. And so uh, and so when your experience of growing up in the Capone family was of, of an Italian family that made meatballs and dandelion soup. Tell, talk a little about that. Well, um, my grandmother, Al's mother, was quite a cook. And being an immigrant from Italy, it was her belief that food was medicine. And so she taught me that. She was that right. She is absolutely <laughs> right. And she had a law in that family that you could not argue at the, at the table because she felt that when you were arguing, your stomach formed acid and it would change the consistency of all the good food that you put in there and it would turn to poison. So she she instilled in me a lot of those concepts. I am a cook. I'm a cook today. And I strongly believe that food is medicine and that people should pay attention to the things that they are consuming. And so you you have a great thing in your book about dandelion soup. A lot of people are not familiar with that today. What What is dandelion soup? And I believe we're past season for it. So this isn't a go, go how-to, but tell, talk to us about that. It's one. past season because it's in the spring. Um, every spring I would go over to Grandma Capone's house and help her gather um, dandelions from the yard. And she taught me how to get them before they had the flower on there and stuff like that. And then my job was to properly bathe them so that all the dirt would get out of them. And then she would make dandelion soup out of that. We would have dandelion greens and salads and dandelion soup every spring because your house was all closed up all winter. And of course, back then, you heated your house with either wood or coal. You didn't have gas at that time. And so she believed there was poisons that had accumulated in the body. And the dandelion greens had this essence in there that would, rhubarb also does the same thing. So you know how, you know, everybody does rhubarb in in the springtime Mm -hmm. too. But it would absorb some of these poisons from your blood and clean out the blood and then get you ready for summer. 
I like it. I think a lot of people are juicing right now with the idea that they're <laughs> going to get rid of their toxins. So it's a, it's a, so it goes around, comes around. But so I have to ask, you kind of came to Minnesota and it seems like you really rebuilt, rebuilt your, your sense of belonging, rebuilt okay. your sense of security. Where were you in the cities or where, where did you end up? In? Yeah, we, um, we settled in Edina and oh. we had four children. They went all through the Edina school system. And then they went back to Chicago um, to um, get their further studies. They went to Northwestern and the University of Chicago. And it was at that time in the 80s where the movie The Untouchables came out. Oh, yeah. And that movie, in my opinion, that movie put a whole ugly face on the whole Prohibition era. And so people were, again, wrongly educated as to what, happened during prohibition you know let's let's just before we go back to that let's just talk about so edina ended up being a real healing place for you and your family Oh yes absolutely except that i was home one day and my 11 year old son came home from school and i said hey bob what did you learn in school today and he says oh we're studying about this gangster called al capone and i just about in fact i it caught my breath. It was like somebody sucker punched me and I couldn't breathe for a minute. So, you know, later on that day, I went to my husband. I said, honey, we're going to have to tell the children their heritage. I never told them. So after all the children were home, you know, we called them into the kitchen and I'm sitting there and my husband is kind of standing behind me holding my hand. So they knew something was up. And I said, kids, I've got something to tell you. And they're looking at me and I said, I was born Deirdre Marie Capone. Al Capone was my uncle. And so help me God, Deirdre, that they looked at each other, then they looked back at me, and the four of them in unison said, cool, Mom. Huh. Well, I wasn't expecting that response. I thought they were going to hate me, because I used to hate God for making me a Capone. You know, Once, once my dad died, see, my mother's family were aristocratic, they they abandoned her when she you know ran away and married you know Al Capone's nephew. They would have nothing to do with her. I was her only child with my father. My my mother had another child, but he's my half brother, and so I was this outcast into my mother's family because I still would go over and be with my dad, be with the Capone family, but I was never allowed to mention anybody's name or tell anybody what I ate, what I did, anything, because, you know, they didn't like the Capones, wanted nothing to do with them. So my mother was always trying to adopt me out. You know, she was trying to get rid of me many, many, many times. You say in the book that you would go to your dad's, uh, you know, kind of Wisconsin fishing camp for three months at a time. Correct. Correct. They just wanted me gone. They wanted nothing to do with me. My brother was a, a different entity. He was, you know, he, they thought he was going to be president of the United States, and I was just this nothing child and to get rid of me. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, when I was a young adult, my mother went and changed her legal name so she could never be called, you know, Elizabeth Capone again. She changed it to Gabriel, and, um, but she didn't bother. She said, you don't need your name changed. You'll get it changed when you get married. So it was just, you know, I was just this 
nothing of a person. Well, once I moved to Minnesota, whoa, my my wings spread, and I I did things up there that were truly incredible. But I loved the 25 years that we lived there. I still have three of our four children live in the Twin Cities right now. Oh, really? They might be listening to you. See, I Hopefully. Think... Yeah, two live in Edina, and um, one lives in uh, Chanhassen. So, you know, if I've got two. I've got a great-granddaughter that's living there right now, our, you know, our second great-granddaughter. I have, you know, 14 grandchildren, four grandchildren-in-law, and now two great-granddaughters. Wow. And so do they all have the Capone family meatball recipe now? Because They all have that. And the, <laughs> the lasagna recipe. And those are good recipes. The, the, the recipes that I put in there, dear, are authentic, you know, Capone recipes. And I've got, at first, I was going to make my story a cookbook. But there are lots of rules and regulations to write a cookbook. You know, you've got to have all the recipes tested a number of times. And, you know, it's got to be printed on certain kind of paper with certain kinds of measurements. And, you know, I didn't have measurements. It was a pinch of this. And if you tasted it and it tasted right, fine, go. <laughs> oh, it's such a – I'm so grateful that you took the time to write this book. And the way you did it as a memoir I think is perfect because – Thank you. Uh, the, this, the Al Capone family, of which you are a part and – you know, yep. people, all of our, all of these neighbors that I didn't know about who are still in the Twin Cities. You know, this is a very American story. We have there's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we. I don't. I think that we could do a lot of uh, good in this country by being kind, by thinking about what we really, you know, who we all are, and who you know, we're all here together, and we've all got to make this Correct. work. And and your family was a is a big part of that story. Well, I was raised by the Capones with a couple of, you know, things drilled into my head. Number one, family is everything, everything. And two, your word is your bond. I don't lie. You can ask all of my children and grandchildren. They have never, ever heard me tell a lie. And the other thing that they taught me, never let your head get too big for your hat. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) That's a good one. All right. Well, I cannot. I cannot thank you enough for taking, uh, for just revealing so much, and for being so intimate and letting us all into your story. The book is Uncle Al Capone: The Untold Story from Inside or His inside Family, correct? Uh, by Deirdre Marie Capone. And you, my dear, thank you so much. I just, I thank appreciate you, you so much. Thank you very much, and I hope I brightened your day. You really did. <laughs> Good. Right. I'm happy. Yeah. All right. Ciao. Uh, ciao. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our uh, look at the look at the past. I've got uh, Danita Ward, and she's written a whole book about prohibition cocktails. It's an interesting, interesting topic, and we'll get to it when we come back. All right, Dara here from Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. Uh, you can definitely. I'm getting uh, questions about what I wrote about Anthony Bourdain. It's up at mspmag.com, and there's a link on my Facebook page and. Oh, the sadness! I just—it's—it's a—it's a big one. Uh, but here's what we're going to talk about now: Danita Ward. She's a best-selling novelist. She writes books set in the Roaring Twenties, uh, and writing all these books led to her newest book, which of course caught my eye: Prohibition Cocktails. This—the reason she did this. So by day, she is the assistant vice chancellor for research at a university, and you know she was very good at research. 
looked into it for her her other her novels, and this is kind of what came out of it. So I have I'm very intrigued. I, we talk a lot in the cocktail world about kind of pre-prohibition cocktails during prohibition, but I feel that a lot of the things that we talk about are not true because I there were no ingredients during prohibition. So that's why I wanted to talk to Danita Ward, and she's got a website, Danita.com. It's D E N I T T A. If you want to follow along on the website, Danita.com. Danita Ward, welcome to the show. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, Dara. Yeah, Prohibition was a fascinating time in American history. Um, the legislators got together. Actually, a, a congressman from uh, Minnesota was the sponsor of the legislation. Good old Volstead with his Volstead Act. Volstead. We have a bunch of bars in town now named after him. It's very ironic. <laughs> Good tribute. tribute. (laughs) Capture that history. That's right. And then what did you find about the real drinking of Prohibition? Because, you know, you read things like, uh, oh, The Great Gatsby, and it just seems like people were just drinking straight whiskey. What were they really drinking, though? So um, it was what people called bathtub gin. And it wasn't always gin. Uh, Sometimes it was grain alcohol with flavorings put in. Um, Rum was being imported from Cuba and some of the islands um, and from Canada. It was being brought down. But a lot of it was just being made um, locally. So if you look around your state and the other states, um, there were suppliers hidden everywhere. Um, people were also uh, doing their own home brews. Um, I hear stories in Minnesota about there's this kind of variety of corn called Minnesota 16 and these crazy strategies where they'd have children literally driving the trucks because they thought, oh, if the children get stopped, they won't end up in jail. Like all kinds of prohibition yeah, stories. Yeah. Fascinating. Like uh, some would dress up as priests or nuns in order to do the deliveries. Oh, that's yeah. good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So a lot, a lot of uh, ingenuity, I think, and creativity um, went into uh, to figuring out how to really skirt the law. As I say, the 1920s, it was a time when the rules were clear, and they were made to be broken, and people all across the United States were breaking the rules, even though the majority of citizens had voted for prohibition. So the difference between our private lives and our public personas is fascinating to me. It's certainly an era that is rich um, with tension, right? And and it makes a great time to explore in terms of not only our own values, but the the historical fiction that can come out of it. Sure. Women so had only been fun. voting for, uh, <laughs> you know, a few scant oh, yeah. years before this all happened. So it was a, a shock to the system in a lot of ways. But what – so what were they doing with this bathtub gin? So – the bet, the quality. So, the, so the problem is that there weren't quality control standards, right? And and you had to make it flavorful. And whatever you can do to mask that taste, because the quality standards weren't weren't there, you would do. So, cocktails were being reclaimed that had been um, created years before, and new ones were being introduced. And it was all about adding citrus. Um, that's when we first started seeing a lot of sweetness come into the drinks. Um, it's surprising to me as as I developed these um, this history chronology how bitter some of the drinks were as well. So that that's really interesting. It's so whatever's it's really all kind of that. strategies to mask a bathtub flavor. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the questionable quality. That's right. And so, what did you find in your researches? What were the most popular 
you know, cocktails of the era? So, so ones that live on today, and that's really what I wanted to, to find, the ones we still know about. The Bee's Knees is a great one. Um, and that name came from um, the youth culture. So in the 1920s was the first time America's youth culture was really taking over. They had their own slang. They were, um, fashions were changing. The music was changing. And so... The, the bee's knees was named because it was a sign for the best. Um, she's the bee's knees. She's the best. And this drink is a sweet little drink. It has a rim of sugar on it, um, gin, fresh lemon juice, and then a honey, because you get the bees in there making that honey, with a simple syrup, syrup which is like a one-to-one ratio of honey to water. And, um, and then you just shake that up in your beautiful silver cocktail shaker and, and go. That was a great one. Um, we also find some of the classics like the Gin Ricky were coming back and, and that's one that, that does appear in the Great Gatsby. Um, and that's there, lime there, juice and, and that bathtub gin. Yeah. Yeah. And clubs and club soda there, um, to top it off. Um, there was fascinating. Uh, one called the hanky panky. That was fascinating. Um, and then with that one, we see how language changes over time. So in the 1920s, there was a female bartender, which was a very rare thing, out of uh, the London, out of London, the Savoy Hotel. Her name was Ada Coley, and she she was there for over two decades as a bartender, and had a great reputation. A, an actor came in and he he requested, "Make me a drink, Coley, with with a punch in it." And so she she made up this drink for him in the 1920s called the hanky panky so nowadays we think of that word as being um risque it has a romantic uh, association to it yeah so she she gave him some hanky panky um but it was uh, actually the word just meant trickery or magic so it was a little magic drink and that's gin a little sweet vermouth and then some some amaro bitters um I see that that gets to the point of my question because I look at all these recipes. I was like oh, using vermouth and stuff. It's like there was no vermouth. I couldn't. I don't think that Al Capone was bothering you know getting into Italy and getting some vermouth and getting it over here. So it has, your citrus thing has illuminated some questions for me. Yeah. All right, well, Danita, we are unfortunately out of time, but you're. I love that you're kind of really getting into the the reality of prohibition cocktails. I I like that you're not just um you know guessing like so many of the bartenders do. Uh, if you want to find yeah. out more about Danita, find her at Danita.com, d e n i t t a dot com, and it's Danita Ward, and she writes twenties uh, books and now twenties cocktail guides. And thank you for that. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me. All right. We are just out of time. We've got a short show because of the twins. Next week, Sue Morris from Kowalski's comes on to talk about wellness. That's big. It's important. So like we said, food is medicine. Take your medicine. And I'll see you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.